Well, we're continuing our study in the book of Revelation. We are 22 weeks into it. I know, right? Why do we study this book? Because this is the one book out of the 66 that God tells us we will be blessed if we study it and if we teach it. Revelation 1.3 says, God blesses the one who reads this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to it and obey what it says, for the time is near when these things will happen. You ever why, you know, you wonder why God says, okay, this book is the blessing book. Why is it, why, why this one? Doesn't he bless all of his word? He does. But how many have had a tendency to kind of overlook this book because it's difficult to understand? And I think God says, even though it's difficult, you'll be blessed if you read it. I want to bless you. I want you to take time to study this book. Even though it's difficult, a lot of symbolism, I want you to understand it so you will be blessed. And our tendency to over, is to overlook things we don't understand. We like to focus on John's gospel, right? Let's just focus on John. Let's focus on James. I don't want to hear about God's wrath. I want to just focus on God's love. Now, they also picked John to write it. Why John? Why couldn't it be any of the other guys? Because the same guy who wrote about God's love is the same guy writing about God's wrath, right? Both are true. Maybe it's something we don't want to think about. You don't want to think about the suffering that's going to happen during the tribulation. Or maybe you think that it just can't be true. It's just too crazy to be true. Maybe God wants us to study it to keep an attitude of urgency knowing that these events are going to happen soon. I think that's what it is. God wants us to understand that these things are imminent and that we need to be about God's business in these last days. Now, these lessons that we're doing these so far, 22, this is just a cursory study of this book. There are volumes written about this book, and there's different opinions. There's volumes everywhere. We're trying to give you the best that we can from using different sources to understand what God's Word says. Multitudes of opinions about the symbolism, and we're just trying to give you an understanding, a brief understanding of what's going to happen during those tribulations. Most commentators call the first three and a half years the tribulation and the second three and a half years the great tribulation because that's, even though there's suffering in the first three and a half, the second three and a half is going to bring about God's wrath. The first three and a half were nature and the enemy. Now, the second three and a half is what God is going to pour out upon the earth. So last week we ended with having two of the three woes that have passed. And now we're waiting on the third woe, right? 11, uh, Revelation 11.14 says, we ended with this last week. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. And last week we said that we concluded the intermission between the sixth and seventh trumpets. We had the six seals, an intermission. The seventh seal was actually the seven trumpets. So now we went through the six trumpets, intermission. Intermission is over. The seventh trumpet is about to sound. So we're going to pick it up at that point. Revelation 11:15 says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. The seventh trumpet will include the seven bold judgments and the victory that comes after Armageddon. Now, notice that previously John was on earth, seeing things that were going to happen. 
Now John's back in heaven, seeing it from that vantage point. He's back to where he was when he was back in chapter 4. In the presence of the throne and the, and the elders, that's where he's at right now. In verse 15 and 16 say, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was loud shouting in heaven. The whole world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders sitting on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped him. These are the same 24 elders and thrones mentioned back in chapter 4. So he's back basically where he started in chapter 4. And they also heard a shout of victory. Now, the victory shout comes before the victory actually happens. And what's happening is John is getting a vision of what's going to happen all the way to the end. And even though the second half is yet to happen, they're still claiming victory. And, the only, and I'm thinking, trying to get a, an, an example, and the only one I can think of is you're watching a football game, and it's a two-minute warning. And your team is ahead by 40 points. Game isn't officially over yet. There's plays to be played. But you know you're going to win. This is where they are. There's a lot of time left. There's three and a half years left. But they know they can see the end. They know they're going to win. The elders were worshiping and shouting victory because they knew that even though there's, quote, two minutes left, and the devil can wreak havoc during that time, and God's going to pour his wrath out, they know that in the end, the victory is God's. We said before, you know, we read the end of the book, we win. That's literally true. Because in the end, even though all this is going to happen, God wins in the end. And you can start celebrating officially before it's over because you're confident of the outcome. The elders were worshiping God because they were confident of the outcome, even though there's three and a half years left. And what is it? It's basically a shout of faith. We prayed up front for miracles, and we've been praying for things for a long time. And we say we claim it in the name of Jesus. We claim the victory in the name of Jesus. We may not have it at this moment, but in the end, we know we're going to get it. We're praying for those to be saved, all those names on that cross there. And we know, as we said, God already wants them to be saved. God's a God of the impossible. God can do it, and we're going to claim them before they even are saved. It's a shout of faith. We're not worried. We're not fearful. We're praying. We're consistent. We trust God. And we can believe in faith that he is going to do it. And it's the same as trusting for events to happen now. We sang it. If God promised it, then we can shout it in victory, even if we haven't received it yet. Because God's word is true. We win in the end. It's kind of like the other football example we've used before. If you videotape of a game and you watch it the next day and you know who won before you watch the game, it doesn't matter what happens in the game because you know that you saw the, you saw the end, that your team wins. So even though they're down by 20 points or the quarterback gets hit or whatever happens, it doesn't matter because you know how it's going to end. And that's how our life is. We may get knocked down, we may get abused by the enemy, but we have victory because we know that in the end God is going to win and we are going to overcome. The elders are like we are. We know the final outcome. Verse 17 says, And they said, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who always was, for now you have assumed your great power and have begun to reign. They're worshiping God by thanking him and recognizing 
not only who he is, but the power that God has. And that's how our worship should be. When we worship God, this is the verse we read this morning. We shout with joy to the Lord, O earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him singing with joy. Now, sometimes you don't feel like singing. How many come to church every Sunday feeling like you wanted us, can't wait to sing? Or more often than not, you walked in going, okay, I guess I'll start singing. But what happens? You start singing. In the end, when you're done worshiping, the joy is there. You now have, it, you now have that anticipation of what God is going to do. The Bible says, we are, back to that verse, we're the sheep of his pasture. We enter his gates with thanksgiving. Go into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. That's how our worship should be, in anticipation of what God is going to do. In chapter four, they worship the creator. In chapter five, they worship the redeemer. And here they are worshiping the conqueror and king. Now, if you remember, during John's time when he's writing this, the church seemed defeated. They were being abused by Rome. Rome had taken over Jerusalem. They, you know, destroyed the temple. And now the church was in shambles, or at least it appeared that way. But yet John and all the elders are worshiping God because they know even though it seemed bad for them at that moment, they knew that God was going to win in the end. I heard this question the other day. Let me ask you this. What's the opposite of God? What do you think the opposite of God is? If you say the devil, you're wrong. Because it ain't the devil. Actually, the answer to that would be nothing. Nothing is the opposite of God. A lot of people think that God has like 51% power and the devil has 49% power. No. God has 100% power and authority. The devil only has what God allows him to have and God allows him to use. So when we look at the, we worship the Lord, we know that God has ultimate power and anything that's happening is because of divine permission. How many understand that? The devil can't do anything without God's specific permission. Look at the book of Job. And notice in the book of Job, who initiated that? God initiated that, right? God says to Job, hey, look, or to the devil, hey, look at Job. And the devil says, oh, Job, wait, wait. Oh, yeah. And he starts allowing him to attack Job. Why did that happen? So that Job could grow. And the devil only could do what God allowed him to do. I was telling the kids this morning, I asked them, how often do you read your Bible? How often do you pray? I said, well, here's what's going to happen. I said, your parents are praying for you, your grandparents are praying for you. God's going to get your attention. And you want it to be a good thing when God gets your attention. However, God may use something negative to get your attention as well. The example we read was uh, in this course book we have. Uh, a child was misbehaving and the parent and the mother told him to go stand in the corner or go sit in the corner. And the kid says to his mom, yeah, I may be sitting, but I'm standing on the inside. Like he's rebelling, you know, he's doing this. I said, why does his mom do that? Because the mom wants him to make better choices and is giving him consequences for the choices he's making. Wants to get his attention. God wants to get your attention. The Bible says that 
The blessings of God, the goodness of God brings people to repentance. Sometimes it's a good blessing. Sometimes God pours his love and mercy upon you and you recognize that and you come to know Christ. But if you're like that little child who's standing on the inside, God says, okay, blessings aren't gonna work to get this guy's attention. And we all have kids like that, right? We have one that just is compliant. That's usually their first child. They're compliant. They do everything you ask them to. God tricks you into thinking that's going to be the same way with the second child. Second child comes, not so much. And you have to treat that one differently because they're the ones that are obstinate and coming against you, right? And you guys will. <laughs> God wants to get your attention. God is using, and we study Revelation in, in class today, God uses the negative things in Revelation to try to get people's attention. He could wipe them out in one instant, all of them at one time, but he doesn't. Why? Because he wants to get their attention and giving them a chance to repent before it's too late. And I told the kids, I said, you know what? One way or another, God's gonna get your attention. And you want it to be because God's blessing you, not because God's making you sit in the corner even though you're standing on the inside. And God has 100% power and authority to do what God can do, and the enemy has no authority unless God allows him to have that authority. And at the beginning of Revelation, we find out that God cuts the devil loose, and the devil has authority on the earth during that time. But then God takes it back from him. Now, verse 18 says, the nations were angry with you, but now the time of your wrath has come. Now, does that sound familiar, that verse? It should. Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage? Why do the people waste their time with futile plans? You ask yourself, why were the nations angry? God's been good to them. Why is our nation angry with God? God's been good to this nation. He provides everything we need. He gives us material blessings. We're not really giving into judgment right now. God's giving everyone in the United States a time to repent. And he sent Jesus to take that punishment for us. What do we have to complain about? What do nations have to complain about? You know what they're complaining about? That they can't do whatever they want to do. How many of your kids have told you, you never let me do anything? No. It just means you can't do bad things, things that are going to hurt you. God's the same way. God says, there's things that are going to hurt you. I'm going to tell you not to do those. I know what's going to happen if you do them. They're going to hurt you, so don't do them. And everyone says, we don't care what you think, God. We're going to do them anyways. And so because God is calling them on that, they get angry with God, and they range, and they shake their fist at God. Psalm 2 continues and says, the kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from this slavery. How many of you, when you have teenagers, have ever said to you, I can't wait till I move out so I can do whatever I want. I don't have, I don't have your chains on me anymore. You don't have to tell me what to do. That's exactly what people are doing with God. We don't want your change. We don't want your slavery, God. We want to do whatever we want to do and suffer any consequences. No one's going to tell me what to do. 
What happens with that type of thinking? What happens to their first year of college or wherever they go when they have no restraints? They go crazy, right? Anarchy. Look what happens in, in our country when people do whatever they want to do. They burn down buildings, they smash windows, they steal. Anarchy. When there's no type of restraints, the Bible says people go crazy. Notice the change in the attitudes of the people. Revelation 11.2 says, they will trample the city for 42 months. And then verse 10 says, all the people who belong to this world will give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. So now you're first you're burning buildings. Now you're going to celebrate the death of God's people. And now verse 18 says that the entire nations were angry with God. So it progresses from being a small group to celebrating the enemy until the whole nation becomes enveloped in this anger and rage. The celebration and joy that they had back in verse 10, you know, when they celebrating the guys who died, that didn't last very long. What happens when you give an angry child what they want just to appease them? It's never enough. They want something else. And they will find something else that they want, and they will be mad if you don't give that to them. And on it goes. And it's exactly what's happening with the people. They have everything they want. God's not there. They're, they're raging against God. They're, they're celebrating, and they still aren't happy. Let me realize when you get the blessings in this country, sometimes it's not enough. We don't realize that God's the giver of those. Everything we have is never enough. What's the Bible say? The love of money is the root of all evil because you're never happy with what God gives you. These people, even though it seemed like they were getting everything they wanted, the prophets were killed, God's presence is pretty much gone, they're burning places down, they've got what they wanted. And they're still not happy. And I kind of see that today with the cancel culture and everything else. They're not happy with where they are. They want to keep going and keep going. And this attitude in Revelation causes the nations now to fight against God. They've got nothing else to fight against, and so now they're going to fight against God. Verse 18 says, however, now the time of your wrath, whose wrath? God's wrath has come. God's done playing around now. He unleashed nature and the devil in the first three and a half years, and that didn't work. So now it's time for God to pour out his wrath. It's a scary thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. And this verse is a synopsis of what's going to happen in the future, and John spells it out for us in verse 18. He said, God's wrath, this is what God's wrath is. It's time to judge the dead and reward your servants. You'll reward your prophets and your holy people. All who fear your name, fear your name from the least to the greatest, and you will destroy all those who have caused destruction on the earth. So far, the nations have brought wrath on God's people. They're killing the Christians. They're martyring them. And now God is going to bring his wrath on those people who caused the Christians to be killed. And these are events that are going to happen in, in the remainder of the book. It's, it's like one sentence. It's, going to, it's a description, like a foreword, of what's going to happen the rest of Revelation. Verse 18 says, it's time to judge the dead. Who are the dead? This is the wicked dead, people who have died without Christ. 
In Revelation 20, verse 11 says, And I saw a great white throne, and I saw the one who was sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, and they found no place to hide. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the things written in the books, according to what they had done. The sea gave up their dead in it, and death and grave gave up the dead in them. They were all judged according to their deeds. And death and grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So the first thing he says, God, in the future, in the near future, the next three and a half years, God's going to judge the wicked dead. If you die without Christ, this is going to be your judgment, the great white throne judgment. And what does God do? God opens the books. He reads what's in the books, and these are the books of things that you've done as a a non-Christian, things you've done for the people that think they're going to get to heaven because they've done good works. Not because they've trusted Christ, but because they lived right and they didn't smoke, drink, or swear, or whatever. That's how they think they're going to get in. And God says, okay, we'll go by your rules. Let's open the book and let's look at all the things you've done. And when they open the book, they're going to find out, obviously, that they've sinned because everyone sins. And the first time sin comes up, that's the end of the discussion. God says, okay, we did it your way. You sinned. You're not going to make it in. You didn't accept the payment for that sin in Christ, so now you're going to, we're going to judge according to your works, and your works don't make it. And you're going to hell, lake of fire. But God also rewards those who love him. Back in verse 18, it says, it's time to judge the dead and reward your servants. You'll reward your prophets and your holy people, all who fear your name. So you have two or three groups here. You have the prophets. God singles them out as receiving a special blessing, a reward for their suffering. Revelation 16, 6 says, for your holy people and your prophets have been killed and their blood was poured out on the earth. Revelation 18, 20. But you, O heaven, rejoice over her fate and also rejoice, O holy people of God and apostles and prophets, for at last God has judged her on your behalf. And then back in Acts 7.52, it says, name one prophet your ancestors did not persecute. And Jesus said in Matthew 23, so you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. So God singles out the prophets as receiving a special delineation there that they're going to get a reward that's different or a different time than other folks. Then it goes on and says, you reward your prophets and your holy people. The NIV says, and all your saints. And this could be a lot of people believe it's the saints that are back in chapter 5 under the altar, praying, interceding for those, asking God to finally bring judgment. Or it could be believers of every age. It's not specific. It doesn't say one or the other, so we can't really be specific. Other than there's going to be holy people that are going to receive God's blessing. And verse 18 continues, all who fear your name from the least to the greatest. And that emphasizes the fact that every believer is going to receive rewards. Whether you are the greatest Christian ever to have walked the earth or the lowliest pagan who got saved just before you died. Everyone, least to greatest, will receive a reward. Now, 1 Corinthians 3 talks about the rewards and how you receive them. Verse 11 says, For no one can lay any other foundation than the one we already have in Jesus Christ. Now, anyone who builds on that foundation, and stop there for a minute. 
when we talk about good works, we talk about good works that take place because you are a believer, not in order to make you a believer. Do we see the difference? Once you're a Christian, then you do good things because you're a Christian. You're not, you're not earning brownie points with God by doing the good works, trying to make, get in by that. It's when somebody does something for you, Christ died for you, so necessarily you want to do things to honor him. You're not, you're not working your way in. You've already got in. You want to do things now because you appreciate what God did for you. So that's what they're talking about, the foundation. So now anyone who builds on this foundation, which is salvation, may use gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But there's going to be a, come, a time of testing on the, on, at that judgment day to see what kind of work each builder has done. Everyone's work will be put through the fire to see whether or not it keeps its value. If the work survives the fire, that building, builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builders themselves will be saved, but someone, like someone escaping through a wall of fire. So what's that mean? As Christians, we do things because we want to honor God. And God is going to test our motives behind the things that we do. If you do things because you want a pat on the back, you want people to recognize you and say, great job, awesome, we appreciate that. If that's why you do it, the Bible says that's your reward. That's what you got. That's all you're going to get. But if you do it, you may, now you may receive that. But if you do it because you want to please God and you want God to pat you in the back, that's where they're talking about gold, silver, and precious stones. God judges the motives. If I get up here and I preach because I like it and I want people to tell me, good job, and you did a great job, if I'm doing it for that reason, it's going to get burned up because I'm not doing it to bring honor to God. I'm doing it to bring honor to me. The things that we do for God, we do for God. If no one else sees it, if no one else recognizes it, God sees it, and that's why you do it. That's the stuff that gets rewarded. If we do it out of selfish motives for ourselves or other people or we do it because we like getting paid to do it, that's going to get burned up. You'll get into heaven, but you won't receive any rewards for the things that you've done. Luke 6.23 says, When that happens, rejoice, yes, leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. So we will be rewarded. And we want to live our life here in a way that honors God so that when we get there, God tells us we are rewarded. And the Bible tells us that we should, it's okay, to seek God's reward. And that reward takes place in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. It says, Then I saw the thrones and the people sitting on them have been giving authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus, for proclaiming the word of God. And I saw the souls of those who had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark, on their forehead or hands. They came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until a thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection, for then the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So in addition to judging the wicked dead and sentencing them to eternal torment, and rewarding the believers, getting the crowns that we get, God also judges the enemies of God. Revelation, or rep, yeah. Enemies, enemies of God, right. 
Verse 18 says, and you will destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. This is all those who are still alive at this time with the devil, Antichrist, and the false prophet. We see it today here. We see it in other countries. What happens when people come into power and have unchecked power? Greed and sin and physically destroying the earth. I mean, look at Venezuela right now. It used to be a prosperous country until one guy took over and destroyed what God gave. And what happens is you look at, look at them now versus 20 years ago, it's the nation's basically burning itself to the ground. Why? Because of sin of the people in power. And when they're talking about people who have, dis, who have caused destruction on the earth, that's who they're talking about. The leaders who are causing this, along with everybody who's following them, but specifically for the leaders at that time. This, place, this will take place in Revelation chapter 20, verse 8. He says, he will gather them together for battle, a mighty host as numerous as sands along the shore. And I saw them as they went up from the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people and the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil who had betrayed, betrayed them was thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Notice what it says. The devil who betrayed his own people. You know, you have people saying, I'm gonna, I'll be in hell with all my buddies. It's not how it's going to work. The enemy who wants you to do everything for him is going to betray you at any given moment. Here's what happens. The devil tempts you to sin. You give in and you sin. And then he's the first one to condemn you for sinning and he's the first one to heap all the consequences on you for that sin. And finally, verse 19 says, Then in heaven the temple of God was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant could be seen inside the temple. The chapter opens with the temple on earth that they were measuring and ends with the temple in heaven. This is not the earthly temple because that earthly temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And this is not the Ark from the temple because that was assumed destroyed with Nebuchadnezzar's burning of the city. 2 Kings 25 says, on the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, hard name, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. So, for you Raiders of the Lost Ark fan, no ark. Not going to find it. It was destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar burned everything down. So the ark they're talking about in heaven is not the ark from the earth. Jeremiah prophesied that when the restoration of Israel came out, the ark would not be a part of it. Jeremiah 3.16 says, In those days when your numbers have greatly increased in the land, declares the Lord, men will no longer say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. 
So Indiana Jones is not going to find the next ark. It's destroyed. In the New Testament times of the temple, there was no ark. In the Holy of Holies, it was empty, but there was a Holy of Holies, but no ark. This is the ark that's a symbol of God's presence in heaven. What In the Old Testament, the ark was God's presence, right? He rested over the ark. In the New Testament, there was no ark, therefore not, no God's presence, but now the ark in heaven, again, symbolizing God's presence in heaven. And if you're John, you're reading this and you see, hey, we haven't had an ark here for a couple thousand years. Now we have an ark. It means God's presence is here. And that would have encouraged him and it would have encouraged the people who read his book because these things have been said, but they haven't happened yet. So if you're seeing things, all these negative things are going to happen, but then you see the ark at the end and you know that God's presence is after all of this, you know that God's presence has been through all of it as well, and the believers are going to win in the end. The people are reassured that God's presence is not only with them at the end, but he's with them through all the situation they're going to trouble. And John's basically telling his readers, quote, God will fill his, fulfill his promises. He will reveal his glory with, with and through that ark. In other words, trust him. How many, when you watch the news, you get really ang- angry sometimes? And you want instant judgment. Doesn't happen. What we focus on is that God is going to bring about ultimate judgment at some point. The Bible says, ours isn't the, we don't revenge ourselves, God pays them back. So we kind of sit back and say, I know all this bad stuff's happening right now, but who's still in control? God's still in control. The devil's not doing anything he's not permitted to do. Now for what's happening in this particular part of the world, our country, don't forget, whatever the enemy's doing, God is allowing him to do. Why might that be? Going back to what we said at the beginning, God wants to get our attention. <laughs> what better way to get our attention than to have negative stuff happen to us as a country. Could be partial judgment. It could be just consequences for sin. You know, every time something bad happens, people say, is this God's judgment? Is this God's judgment? My take has always been, not God's judgment, it's just what God knew was going to happen if he did it. When, when AIDS first came out, everyone's saying, oh, God's judgment. no. no. It wasn't specifically God's judgment. It was something that God knew was going to happen. If you continue, this is going to happen. So I'm telling you, don't do it. And when it came about, we were all surprised that it happened because God said, don't do it. And the same thing with what we're seeing now. All the things that are happening is, okay, you're doing what I told you not to do. Here's the consequences of doing that. And then verse 19 says, lightning flashed, thunder crashed, and roared, and there was a great hailstorm. And the world was shaken by a mighty earthquake. Again, John sees a storm. Just like in chapter 4, it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Revelation 8, 5, Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. These always indicate 
a greater judgment is about to fall subsequent to these earthquakes. It's going to come on the earth. It's going to come on the enemies of God. The, judge, the lightning and the thunder and the earthquake are basically saying, okay, here's the beginning. And what's coming after this is going to be terrible. And it happened in chapter 4 and in chapter 8. And all these final judgments are going to bring about a final end to this present world system. It's going to bring about the Antichrist end. And it's going to bring in, usher in the thousand years. Now remember that the worship song that the elders were singing was a compilation of the events that are going to happen in the near future. It didn't happen all at once. These are things that were interspersed on the rest of the book, but kind of a, uh, a synopsis of what's going to happen. This ends chapter 11. And what happens after chapter 11? The stage is set now. We haven't seen the beast yet. We haven't really seen the Antichrist yet. Now, everything is set up for that to happen. That is going to be part of God's wrath on the earth, allowing the people that come up to power, the enemy, Antichrist, false prophet, the unholy trinity, that's going to take rise after chapter 11, and that's when the next three and a half years come in, and that's what we call the great tribulation because that is worse than the first three and a half years. And we read what happened the first three and a half years with the seals the earthquakes and the floods and everything else that's going to happen. What do we say? Like 50-some percent of the people will be gone at that point. And that's not bad enough. Now, these guys come on the scene and God sets them up to finish the judgment on the people who are wicked. And at the end of that, every one of them will be judged, thrown into the lake of fire. And then we have the thousand years and then we have the new heavens and the new earth. You nervous? What we say, prophecy, what tips say, prophecy isn't meant to scare you, but to prepare you. Prepare. We're not going to be here for it if we know Christ. We won't be here for it. But so many people will be. That's why we pray for revival. That's why we pray for our kids for VBS. I was telling the, the teens today, that God has a plan for them and they need to be ready for that plan because they're young kids. I told them the stat that, now this statistic is, you know, it's probably at least 15, 20 years old, that 85% of people who come to know Christ do it before they're 18 years old. That there's only 15% of people coming to know Christ after they're, after they're 18. And the reason that is, is because when you become older, what happens? Old people, you get set in your ways, right? We get set, no one's going to tell me. We get set in our ways. We're going to do what we want to do. And it's a lot harder for someone who is set in their ways to change, to accept Christ. And so I said, you guys are right now in the prime of it. God's going to prepare you for something that you're going to do, your generation's going to do, but you need to be ready for it. Be prepared for it. Josiah was eight years old when God called him to be king. He did great things. God can call you right now to do great things but you need to be ready for it. That's why I encourage them to read their Bible and pray. Would you stand as we close this morning? Would you bow your heads for a moment? I mentioned earlier that prophecy 
And Tiff says, it shouldn't scare you, but it should prepare you. And that goes if, if you don't know Christ, then maybe it should scare you. Because once the rapture happens and the church is gone, all these bad things are going to happen. And it'll be a lot harder to get saved at that moment. In fact, we said before, and we've done the scriptures before, if you hear the gospel now and you reject it, you will not get saved after the rapture. The Bible says God will send a delusion to you that you'll believe the lies that are coming forth. So if you're here today and you've heard this and it's beginning to worry you, the Bible says that's God wanting to draw you to himself. He doesn't want anyone to go through this. The Bible says he's long-suffering, giving, many, giving everyone a chance to repent. Everyone. No one is meant to go through it, but many will because they don't. And if you're here this morning, you've never really given your life to Christ. You've never asked him to forgive you of your sins because we all have them. We all sin. And the Bible says the wages of our sin is death. That's eternal separation from God. But the gift of God, the Bible says, is salvation through Christ. He took the payment for you. He suffered for you. He suffered for me. And the Bible says as many as receive that, he gave the power or authority to be called children of God. The Bible also says if you're thinking about God, it's because God's making you think about him. Because he wants you to make that choice. So if you're here and you've never really committed your life to Christ and you're not even sure what that means, but you know you want to know more about Jesus. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. That God is drawing you today. He wants that relationship with you. The Bible also says that he, he stands at the doorway of your heart and he knocks. But he wants you to open it. He's not going to force himself on you. He's not going to make you choose it. He wants you to choose Jesus because you love him. And if that's you, and you want that assurance that you have eternal life with Christ, I want you to raise your hand. I'm going to pray with you. All right, I'm going to assume that we are all committed followers of Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word tells us that we will be blessed if we study and read it and do it so that we expect, not because we do anything, but because your word tells us we expect blessing, Lord. We prayed for miracles earlier today. We prayed for a number of things that your word tells us you, you do. So, Father, we just pray that you would just show yourself true, let your word be true, let our lives be transformed because of what you do in us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Revive each one of us from the inside out and revive your church. As we sang, revival's coming, we can feel it and we believe it. We thank you that we know you. We're thankful that you took time with us. You were long-suffering with us and you saved us. If you saved us, Lord, you can save anybody. 
So we do continue to pray for those who are lost, that you would save them. We pray that you would give us divine opportunity to reach people. And we pray that more people would come to know the truth of Christ and be freed from the the slavery of sin that the Bible tells us that we're in. Lord, all we can say is thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your blessing. Thank you for all you have done for us. And Lord, because of your goodness, we want to just love you back. We want to be able to do that the best that we can. So Lord, I pray your blessings upon each person here this morning. Allow them to experience you, not just this morning, Lord, but every day. Let us wake up full of the Holy Spirit, excited for what God is going to do that day with you and with me. So Father, we commit ourselves to you. Help us to serve you the best we can, we ask in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. See you Wednesday night. If you have testimonies of God answering prayer, we want to encourage others by sharing that. So let me know when God is doing things in your life.